Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. It's good to build each other up and encourage one another. Can you guys feel a sense of um, not just urgency, but also a sense of making the most of every minute, the most of every, every hour that we have? And this idea that, you know, the relationships that we have with one another, the world's supposed to know that we are his disciples by our love. And you can feel that there's an attack on, I'm sure, I'm not just speaking for myself, but you can feel there's an attack on even relationships within the church and relationships within the body. And um, fight against that, pray against that. And the, I don't know where that's coming from right now. <laughs> that wasn't anywhere that has anything to do with the study. I don't know, it's just something weighing on my heart lately. Genesis chapter 19. We're in Genesis chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 30 through 38. We're going to finish out the chapter, God willing, of course, finish out the chapter today. I guess we should recap what we look at last week. What we cover last week. Sodom getting destroyed. Exactly right. It was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was actually the destruction of of the cities of the plains. All of the cities except for one. Do you remember what city that was? Zoar. Zoar. That's right. One of the five cities that wasn't destroyed. Zoar. Why wasn't that city destroyed? Right, because Lot got a special dispensation, if you will, for that city, a special permission that that city wouldn't be destroyed. And the angels told him, all right, all right, fine, go over there. Where did the angels originally send him before before the agreement regarding Zoar was made? The hills. hills. Run for the hills, right? Get to the mountains, right? That was the original thing. And he's like, oh, I'm afraid I'm not going to make it. I'm afraid that, you know, the judgment's going to overtake me before I get there. And they're like, you know, please let me go to this little city over here, this little city. Isn't it a little city? Look at that little city. Can I go to the little city? And they're fine. Fine, go to the little city. All right, and I won't destroy the city, but I can't do anything until you get there. Get there. And so now we open up with verse 30. And we looked at verse 30. That's what we ended with last week. But I think we ought to look at it again as we open this week. So somebody mind reading verse 13. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. How about that, huh? And we talked about that a little bit. So he's been given special permission to go to Zoar, and then within one verse he's already afraid. Did he even get there? (laughs) He's already afraid about staying in Zoar, and where does he end up? In the, mountains. in the mountains, which is where the angel said to get to anyway. We don't have any clue why he was afraid. We could probably read between the lines and, and come up with some reasons as to why he might have been afraid. What are some things that you might think of? Uh, again, this is kind of in the realm of just speculation, but why might he be afraid to go to Zoar now? Or why might he be afraid to stay in Zoar? Mike, you look like you wanted to say I'm something. just thinking the other four cities are, have been destroyed, so he's probably thinking that he wouldn't be safe there. Maybe doubting. Could be, yeah. Angels. It could be that he's thinking, oh, it's the same kind of people that are living here as I saw in my other cities. You know, who's, who's to say this city might not get destroyed as well? Yeah, that's a possibility. What else? What are some other possibilities that might come to mind? Maybe he just had a chance to think about it and say, wait, I was supposed to go to the mountains. Maybe I better go to the mountains or the same thing will happen to me. There you go. Yeah, maybe sometimes God's advice that's sent through an angel might be a better idea than what we come up with. And even though God might defer and let us choose our own way, sometimes we might come to our senses and go, maybe I should go with the original idea <laughs> all, mm-hmm. all along. Yeah, that's a possibility too. 
Uh, another one, it might be that perhaps the people in Zoar, they're like, all these other cities around us are destroyed. Who are you? Oh, you came. You're the only survivors from Sodom, really. You know, maybe you're the one to blame, type of thing. You know, who knows? I mean, we don't know what the reasons are, but for whatever reason, he decides that the hills are a better choice. He ends up going to the hills. They end up living in a cave. So, who's in the cave? What three people? His two daughters. Lot his two daughters, living in the cave. Great digs, right? Great digs. You're living in the cave. And uh, somebody might read in verse 31. And actually, I saw that. Gabby has New Living Translation. Mm-hmm. All right, so New Living Translation, I actually like the wording of that because it makes it really pretty clear. If you don't mind, Gabby, would you please read verse 31? Uh, one day the older daughter said to her sister, There isn't a man anywhere in this entire area for us to marry, and our father will soon be too old to have children. Hmm. Okay, so the older sister seems to be concocting a plan, right? Mm-hmm. And she's trying to sell her plan to her sister, her little sister. All right. And her plan seems to uh, have something to do with dad's getting old, right? And there's nobody left for us. Apparently, they're thinking nobody's left. For some reason, they're thinking their candidate pool is pretty small. In fact, they're thinking there is no pool of candidates that they can marry. Even though we all know, wait a minute, there's only been four cities destroyed in the plain. Why are they taking such drastic a view of things? We don't know, but for some reason, they think there's nobody left for them to get married to. And if you can't get married, you also can't have what? Children, Children. right. So their concern is the race is going to die out. Our family is going to die out. It's up to us to solve this problem, right? (laughs) By the way, you notice how this started off. The older sister ends up saying, our father is old, right? We've seen this age obstacle before, haven't we? We've seen this age obstacle with Sarah. When Sarah was saying, oh, my husband, he's so old, and the concerns about him being old, and Abraham was concerned about himself being old, was God able to solve that? Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, we haven't quite gotten to the complete fulfillment of that yet, but of course, we've seen we've seen God saying, I haven't forgotten you. I'm going to be able to take care of this problem. And uh, latest was within one year, you're going to see my blessing. You're going to see the, the promise uh, being fulfilled. So this age barrier, although has been a concern for several key people in the, in the stories as we've been moving along, it shows up again here, and God has been able to say all along, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, but they don't seem to be turning to God. It seems that Lot and his two daughters now, being all that's left of that side of the family, they're not carrying along with them the same devotion to God that Abraham and Sarah have in their lives, right? So the older daughter's coming up with some sort of plan. She's apparently concerned that they're not going to be able to have kids, that they're not going to be able to get married. Dad's getting old. Not sure what that has to do with it yet. If you haven't read the story anyway, you wouldn't know yet what that has to do with anything until the next verse. Oh, dear, what does it say in the next verse? Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Mm. So older sister is concerned that she's not going to be able to have kids because there's nobody worth marrying. And so she comes up with a solution. Um, I'm thinking, (laughs) how warped do you have to be to think that this is the solution? They just came out of Sodom. Exactly right. Just as warped as uh, he was about to give up his daughters. Exactly right. Yeah, if you remember from those stories that we looked at last week and the week before that, yeah, he was willing to give them up. In fact, Johnny Hartley says this regarding this verse. Their father's willingness to compromise their honor to protect strangers must have diminished their respect for him. His behavior showed them how one could use a person, even a close relative, to achieve a selfish goal. 
And then Victor P. Hamilton says, earlier the father was willing to use his daughters for sexual purposes without their consent. Now they will use their father for sexual purposes without his consent. Oh, this is awkward. And this is what we're looking at in our Bible. Okay, here's one of the things too. I like how the Bible doesn't gloss over stuff. You know, I mean, I get into these conversations with a relative of mine who's uh, my dad. Uh, and we, we have these conversations where he says he believes that the Bible is just this manufactured work of man, that it's just made up stories. Well, if that was the case, wouldn't you remove the embarrassing stuff? Wouldn't you remove the ugly stories? Because it doesn't look good. This looks bad. You can't sell this. You see what I'm saying? I mean, this is, this is ugly. All right, what does the next verse say? Verse 33. Somebody mind reading that? That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. Mm. Victor P. Hamilton says, Lot emerges as a pathetic figure. By contrast, Abraham is blessed by God in his old age and is able to start a second family. Furthermore, it is said of Abraham, but not of Lot, that he died in a good old age, an old man full of years. Abraham's honored by God. And why is Abraham honored by God? Because God chose him, and Abraham's honoring God. Lot is not in that same situation. Lot is turning out to be a pathetic figure, as we're seeing here. Matthew Henry says regarding this, where we see that they made their father drink wine, it says, see the peril of drunkenness. It is not only a great sin itself, but lets in many sins, which bring a lasting wound and dishonor. Many a man does that when he is drunk, which when he is sober, he could not think of without horror. See also the peril of temptation, even from relations and friends whom we love and esteem and expect kindness from. We must dread a snare wherever we are and must always be on our guard. No excuse can be made for the daughters nor for Lot. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So everybody gets the picture of what's going on, right? The oldest daughter is deciding that the best solution to the problem, that, as she sees it, is to have sex with dad, to get pregnant by dad. Like that's going to solve the problems. <laughs> like there's not a problem in doing that. Genesis 19.34, somebody mind reading that? On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. Excellent. Thank you, Lillette. I wouldn't have been surprised if this verse would have said something different, if this verse would have said something like, and when she woke up the next morning, she was really sorry for what she did, <laughs> you know? Or when she woke up the next morning, she realized that was a bad idea, or that was a mistake. But we don't see that in this verse. We see the opposite. We see her waking up the next morning and saying, hey, now let's do it for you. She's talking to her younger sister. Hey, it's your turn tonight. The same thing. Yes. Yeah, but you know, I we look at it with a different, with a certain perspective. You're absolutely right. Incest, yep. bad thing. But you know, it was going on back then. Yeah. In Sodom, in Gomorrah, and in Leviticus, when God says, you know, don't do what was done in Egypt. Don't go to your near relatives and have sex with them. It just, it was rampant throughout the Middle East. So to them, it was like. Hey, that's what you do. That is what you do. Yes, over in Leviticus. You remember we've turned to Leviticus a couple times, especially in trudging through the stuff in Sodom. And God addresses this issue just like we've seen with homosexual behavior. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, they didn't necessarily know any better. I mean, those girls, just because they had been raised there. That's right. They had been raised there. And maybe not 
probably not instructed by law. A huge part of who we are comes from the way that we were raised. Yes. Comes from the culture that we were raised in, right? We're hugely shaped by that. We might think, oh, I've been a Christian for X number of years, and I've read my Bible X number of times, and therefore everything I believe comes from here. But that's not actually the case. We hold on to so many things that aren't in here. We didn't get them from here. We got them because we were raised that way. And sometimes they're in harmony, and sometimes they're in conflict. All right, We need to be staying in God's word, constantly looking to the standard, the gold standard for what we're supposed to look like. All right, And to the point where we let ourselves not spend time in God's word, that's going to affect the way that we are in our purity for God. And so these girls, you're looking at them, and Esther's exactly right. They're relying upon their cultural upbringing as their standard. And so by that standard, there's no harm in doing this. And we look at it, fortunately, we have God's word to tell us clearly, yes on this, no on that. And we can see, and in fact, probably even get repulsed by reading this, because we recognize how it repulses God. All right. But when you don't read that, yeah, you're not going to notice. Good point. Excellent. All right. So no mourning after remorse, no mourning after regret on the part of the older sister. She's now trying to sell the idea to the younger sister. All right. And we don't have any idea. It doesn't give us any indication as to whether or not the younger sister was 100% on board with this or only 80% or 70 But she goes through with it, as we'll find in verse 35. Somebody mind reading verse 35? So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went and lay with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So now we have both the older sister and the younger sister have successfully gotten dad drunk on two consecutive nights and each gone in and, and had sex with dad. We don't know yet that they're pregnant except until the next verse, uh, but they've gone in there. One of the things that you notice in the way that that verse ends, in, in verse 35 it says, And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. He did not know, or he was not aware. I think Mike's version says there, he was not aware. That word is not accidentally put there. The author is cluing us in on a wordplay that's throughout the chapter, okay? This idea of knowledge or knowing, okay? So the idea of knowledge and knowing, it's a theme that's going on. The word is yeda in Hebrew, meaning to know. Remember that uh, the Sodomites wanted to know lots of visitors. Remember that? We also discovered that Lot didn't know the true nature of the visitors. You also have Lot did not know what his daughters were doing to him here. And then you have the daughters knowing him in a sexual way. And then you have him not knowing up here in the head, head knowledge of what's going on to him. So there's this whole yada, yada, yada <laughs> all the way through. Is it yada, yada, yada? <laughs> you know, it's all through the chapter and it shows up in different meanings and different nuances. But you see that there's a theme that is playing out as you go through this chapter. Somebody mind reading verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. So they end up getting pregnant by dad. Dad gets them pregnant. All right, so both the daughters are pregnant by dad. This is actually the last mention of Lot by name in the book of Genesis. He pretty much fades away from the story. Victor P. Hamilton says, The text is silent on Lot's reaction. He was certainly not intoxicated for the whole period of his daughter's pregnancies. <laughs> did he respond with anger as did Noah, or did he respond as did Judah and admit that his daughter had done was acceptable? And the absence of any evaluation by Lot, either hostile or sympathetic, is perhaps further evidence of his lackluster character, or perhaps reflects his ignorance that he was the father of Moab and Ammon. His ignorance? Did you ever think that maybe he might be ignorant? Here's his daughters. They're pregnant. It's going to show eventually, right? <laughs> eventually, he's, it's going to be clear that they're pregnant. And what does that conversation look like? Honey? <laughs> um, 
let's see, you and me and your sister in the cave, how did you get pregnant? <laughs> I mean, could you imagine what that conversation maybe looks like? And maybe, the, Dad, you know, don't press me for the details right now. I tell you what, uh, I'll, I'll give you more information when we name the child. All right, so here's what ends up happening. Verse 37, the firstborn gives birth and names his child. Somebody might read in verse 37. When the older daughter gave birth to a son, she named him Moab. And he became the ancestor of the nation now known as the Moabites. Good job. So she names him Moab. Moab means water of the father. And the word water is a play on words. It's seed or progeny or even semen of the father. But even then, it's not real clear because it's not water of my father. It's just water of the father. So there's clearly in the name the allusion to Lot being the father, but maybe he's still clueless. Um, <laughs> and then we have the next one has a child and names her son. What does this? What does verse thirty-eight say? The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Excellent, thank you, Dave. I see Esther smiling over there. Esther, what does Ben Ami mean? If you know. Son of my father. Okay. Yeah. So they both end up giving their sons names that implicate the father without specifically saying it was dad, it was him, it was Lot. But the Bible makes it clear. The author makes it clear. It's definitely Lot that's the father of these two boys. And they end up growing up to become nations of peoples. All right. So you've got the Moabites on one hand and you've got the Ammonites on the other hand. All right. The Moabites and the Ammonites. I've got on the board behind me kind of a little bit of a map and it might help give us a little bit of a perspective. Hebron is the area where we last saw Abraham when he was looking down. The cities of the plain, there's some speculation as to where they might have been, but uh, generally it's, it's down here in the Dead Sea area or the Salt Sea area, typically thought to be something sort of like that, five cities. They may be underwater. Their locations may be underwater. There's some speculation as to that, some ruins that may be down there. But they're having a hard time exploring this area because it's not friendly territory. This is the area of Jordan, okay, modern-day Jordan. They're not real friendly to us going in and checking out and seeing if we can, you know, dredge up archaeological discoveries or anything. It happens from time to time, but for the most part, they're not real, they're not real friendly to us. Uh, but regarding the Moabites and the Ammonites, the Moabites end up in this area, all right, and the Ammonites, or Ammon, the land of Ammon over there. By the way, uh, Ammon, Jordan, it's the same name, just corrupted over time or, or modified over time. So the modern area of Jordan, Ammon, Jordan, carrying on the name of this ancient people group, the Ammonites, for those cities in, in land of Ammon, Ammon. All right? So it kind of gives you a little bit of perspective as to where we're talking about here. Okay? Regarding the Ammonites and the Moabites, where else do they appear in the Bible? I mean, do they fade from the story? They don't. They end up showing up in some other places as well. A couple of the, a couple of the stories that I can tell you about. Number one, I, wanna, I want you to fast forward to the book of Exodus now. In the book of Exodus, it's time for the children of Israel to leave Egypt. All right? And so they leave Egypt, and unfortunately, they're not successful in believing God, so they end up spending 40 years in the wilderness rather than just the short walk it would have been. That was uh, their punishment for not trusting and believing God. But finally, at the end of that 40 years, they end up going and skirting the land of Moab. So when they come into the promised land, which is over here, they end up going around Moab up in here, and they're going to end up coming across this way. All right. So Moab is mentioned in the Exodus account. The Ammonites also being mentioned as well, but Moab more particularly as I'm, as I'm thinking about this story. And it ends up, it's, it's a hostile relationship. 
All right? It's not a good relationship. Even though you would think, oh, you guys are relatives. Why don't you get along? They don't get along. You end up finding passages like this in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. God says this. He says, An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Ooh, sounds like God is mad with the Ammonites and the Moabites. Verse 4, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Do you guys remember the story of Balaam? Balaam and the donkey? Remember that story? Balaam was hired to curse God's people, and he was hired by the king of Moab. The king of Moab said, I'm scared of those guys. Will you come over and curse them? Because, you know, I, I can use all the help I can get to keep them, you know, suppressed and keep them down. You look further in, and uh, the whole book of Ruth... The whole book of Ruth has as its one of its keys is the key figure of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess. She lives in Moab. She's from Moab. And one of the neat things about Ruth is you find out that at the end of the story, all right, she and Boaz get together. Oh, wow, what a wonderful love story. The way it turns out, you know, and she ends up having a kid. And it ends up, the kid has a kid, has a kid. King David. King David has Moabitess blood in his lineage. King David ends up giving birth to a son named Solomon. Not his only son, but one of his sons named Solomon. Solomon ends up marrying a woman, one of many. He ends up marrying a woman who's an Ammonitess. What's an Ammonitess? Yeah, it's a female from Ammon. <laughs> Just like a Moabitess would be a female from Moab. So you've got in that lineage then, by the time you get to David, you've got Moabite blood. By the time you get to Solomon's son Rehoboam, you've got Ammonite blood. You've got Ammonites and Moabites mixed into the lineage. Uh, but what's the big deal, right? Who cares? Who comes from that lineage? Hmm. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses... Well, we'll start with verse 5. Somebody mind reading verse 5 and the first half of verse 6. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. So here we have the lineage, and we have Ruth being mentioned there. She's a Moabitess. By the way, uh, you notice Rahab or Rahab is also mentioned in that verse as well. Oh, and if you look at verse 3, Tamar is mentioned. There's some sketchy women in this story. Okay, but sorry, that's a different, that's a different study. <laughs> I mean, if you look at it, I mean, if you know, the, we don't know yet the story of Tamar, but we'll get to that eventually. I think that's in chapter 38. Then uh, Rahab, she's a prostitute. Ruth, she is a Moabitess. Uh, but anyway, that leads to David. And then somebody might reading the second half of verse 6 and the first half of verse 7. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of... Yeah, you can stop there. Yeah. We don't need to go that far. <laughs> Rehoboam or Rehoboam is the one I was trying to make mention of there. He's the one that's actually the son of Solomon and his wife, who's an Ammonitess. Okay, so you're looking at this list and you're like, no, okay, no big deal. Until you get to, I don't know, what is it, verse 16? Somebody mind reading verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Excellent. Thank you, Dave. So you realize, if you haven't seen this material before, this is a, this is a family tree. This is a, a single, single one person after the other, after the other, after the other tree that leads to Christ. In the lineage of Christ, you have, well, you've got all kinds of other characters, but in this lineage, you end up having Moabites and Ammonites. All right, so that's kind of strange. So do these people show up other places in the Bible? Yes, they do. The Moabites and the Ammonites show up in other places in the Bible. Okay, but that's in the Bible. How about outside the Bible? I mean, maybe these are just people that are made up. I mean, because this was, this was a popular idea 150, 200 years ago. 
Because, I mean, what can you find from archaeology to suggest that these people were actually real? Is there anything that would suggest that these people actually existed outside of what the Bible says? I mean, because if you don't have anything, what do you, you're on the same plane as the Book of Mormon. Do you know the Book of Mormon has people groups that are mentioned, by the way, which have no archaeological evidence to support them? The Book of Mormon ends up having these people groups, the Nephites, the Lamanites, the Jaredites, and the Molochites, completely made up. Oh, sorry, was that, <laughs> was that out loud? Completely made up. There's no archaeological evidence to support any of those people groups or the story that goes along with it. In fact, the Smithsonian Institute and the National Geographic both came out with statements that basically said, Quit trying to ask us if we're actually using the Book of Mormon to guide our archaeological digs and stuff. We're not. And in fact, we have no we have no evidence that any of that is actually true. So what sets us apart? Do we even have any evidence either? I mean, are we in the same category? Is the Bible in the same category that, yeah, these people are attested to inside the Bible only, but are they attested to outside the Bible or not? They're actually attested to outside the Bible as well. Let me look up a few of these. Uh, regarding the Moabites, Ramses II, the pharaoh of the oppression, ends up uh, speaking about Moab among his conquests and some of the writings that we have there. Regarding the Ammonites, the Ammonites are mentioned in the annals of the Sennacherib, Tiglath-Pileser III, and Ashurbanipal. These are actual archaeological finds that attest to, outside the Bible, the existence of this, these ancient people groups, the Ammonites and the Moabites. Looking further than that, you can tell I'm getting excited. I've got to calm down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Looking further than that, we have uh, other archaeological evidence for the Moabites. Oh, I like this one. All right. <laughs> I, got, I have to show you the picture. All right. Anybody ever been to the Louvre in, in Paris, the museum? I guess it's pretty famous, the Louvre. <laughs> I haven't been there. My wife's been there, but I haven't been there. I've never been there. Never been there. All right. See this right here? It, uh, 100, 150 years ago, this was called the Moabite Stone <laughs> because it was found in the lab of Moab. All right. It's now called the, uh, the Meche Stele. Okay. It's a big stone. It's three feet tall. It's two feet wide. It weighs a whole bunch of pounds. All right. There's 34 lines of text written on this. It's Hebrew Phoenician text, except it's Moabite. It's a Moabite stone. It starts off by saying, I'm the one that wrote the, I'm the one that commissioned this to be written, and he's the king of Moab. All right. This stone ends up saying basically the same thing our Bible ends up saying about a battle between this guy, Meshe, the king of Moab, and Omri. This is later on. This is after we're talking about in our story of Genesis. But what I'm saying is the king of Moab puts into writing on this ancient stone his version of the battle that he fought with Omri. And in that stone, all kinds of neat things are, are, are discovered. This stone was found, by the way, in 1868. And there's a whole colorful story about that stone because it was found in Jordan, it was found, which is the area you would expect to find it, right? And then there's so much interest in it that the local people, they feel like they're not going to get their fair share of what it's worth, so they decide to destroy it. It was found completely intact. And when they're getting pressure from people over them in the land to say, hey, you know, we're in charge of you, you live in this land, you've got to give it over to us, the local people are like, you know what, forget this, and they try to destroy it. They end up making a bonfire, they end up throwing it into the bonfire, they get it super hot, they throw water on it so that it'll shatter, and then they throw boulders and stones on it to break it into pieces. And you can see it's made up of pieces. But before it was destroyed, the guy that saw it intact actually had a chance to make kind of like a rubbing of sorts. So he knew what it looked like before it broke, and then it was all broken. And then he ends up going and getting the pieces that he could end up uh, getting his hands on and whatnot, and they end up kind of piecing it back together. In this stone, it mentions not just the king of Moab. It doesn't mention just the king Omri. It mentions king Ahab. It mentions the house of David. It's actually the first attestation to David outside the Bible. 
before that time, they're like, oh, was David really a real guy or is he just made up in the Bible? He's probably just a made up guy. And then they find this and they're like, okay, I guess we were wrong on that. And they end up finding all kinds of other stuff in this. It mentions Israel. It mentions the God of Israel. It mentions yod heh vav Actually using yod heh vav Hey, I mean, it's right there on this stone. It mentions Gad, Nebo, Sharon, Chemosh. Moab, Jahaz, Debon, Aror, River Arnon, Mediba, Baal, Or. These are all things that are right out of our Bible. This is not the Bible. This is an attestation outside the Bible that helps to prove that what we're reading is trustworthy. So pretty exciting. All right, got to move on. All right, how about the Ammonites? Moving on to the Ammonites. Ammonites right here. This is, the, this is one of the signet rings of the king of the Ammonites. Wow. All right, is that kind of hard to see? No, Sorry. I see it. So they find this, archaeologically, they find this, and they go, hey, what, what is this? And as they figure out what it is, they find it's the, it belonged to the king of Ammon. Right here, this little bronze uh, bottle ends up being engraved on the side of it, mentioning the sons of Ammon. All right? Over here, you've got an, a monolith. It's basically uh, a pretty big, in fact, i got another picture of it. It's the one on the right right here, and it's in another museum. And this attests to the, not only to Ammon, but all kinds of other things throughout the Bible as well. Okay, I guess we got to stop. Here's where I'm going to end with this. Can we trust our Bible? Yes, absolutely. Are there findings of archaeology that support what we find that we're reading in here? Absolutely. Is that the same with the Book of Mormon? No, that's in a different category. It's all made up. All right, so basically these things, these things are trustworthy and true. You can go into your Bible and you can feel confident that what I'm reading is not made up by man. What I am reading is actually inspired by the Holy Spirit and it can be verified by findings of archaeology, among other ways as well. So, uh, okay, I'm excited, and I'm gonna, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and pray. We're going to close the prayer. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for meeting us here. Thank you, God, for this time. Thank you for the excitement, Lord, that we can trust, knowing that uh, as we dive into your word, that, hey, there's going to be sometimes we run across things that might create questions in our minds. Uh, but, Lord, we know that uh, some of them have already been answered. We just haven't seen the answers yet, and some of them still to be answered. And we look forward to those days when there's still mysteries to be revealed. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the findings of archaeology that help to attest to the reliability of Scripture. And, Lord, we look forward to uh, what adventures that you have in store for us in the future. What are you going to have somebody find next? Uh, we're excited, Lord. Uh, we, we fully trust that nobody's going to come up with something that's going to end up proving that your word is unreliable. That's not going to happen. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Praise God. Praise God.